Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Tiger Roholt, professor at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Montclair State University. And we're here today to talk about his book, Distracted from Meaning, A Philosophy of Smartphones. Really excited about the topic today. Uh, Dr. Roholt, thank you so much for coming on. PJ, thanks so much for inviting me, and I'm really happy to be here. So, Talk to us a little bit, uh, you, even in the acknowledgments, you know, you've been kind of piecing this book together from different places you've contributed. Um, why this topic? What got you interested in this? Well, um, I mean, I guess like many of us, uh, I've been noticing for a number of years, people being distracted by their smartphones in various in-person situations, myself included, by the way. Um, you know, at a dinner with family and friends, at a college class, at a concert, um, at a football game, on a walk, on a hike. And um, like many of us, I had the uh, concern that this kind of distraction was becoming more pervasive. And I was concerned and interested in thinking about um, the negative effects of smartphone distraction. So what initially framed my thinking about this is that I wanted to understand what the impact of smartphone distraction might be, the effects. And, but the, the characterization that I saw uh, of this impact in various research and texts seemed inadequate in certain ways, even though they got something right. Uh, what I found was that um, people were focused on, researchers and, and others were focused on very particular effects. So, for example, um, texting at dinner results in failing to follow a conversation. Interacting with social media during a college class results in failing to understand some of what a professor says. And those kinds of characterizations of the negative impact of smartphone distraction get something right but they seem to leave out a more fundamental problem with the distraction. Um, I had a hunch that uh, there was a way to characterize the distraction more generally, and I found it helpful to think about people at dinner with friends or people in a college classroom or at a concert as missing out on something more general. Uh, and then the question was, you know, what exactly uh, are they missing out on? And my sort of, you know, one way to think about this might be, are they missing out on some kind of uh, enjoyment or pleasure? Uh, in other words, um, does smartphone distraction make us less happy? And that didn't seem quite right to me after working with it for a while. And so after many 
months and years, actually, of reading, talking, thinking, and writing about this, I finally found my thesis, which was, which is, that certain smartphone distraction uh, interferes with our engagement in meaningful activities and relatedly interferes with the work that we do to shape our self-identity. So smartphone distraction can result in our having less meaning in our lives and smartphones can disrupt our identity work. So I found it fruitful to combine these three things, uh, smartphone distraction, meaningfulness, and self-identity. But that said, um, as you know, I end the book in a positive way by using this exploration of negative concerns to ultimately make some suggestions about how we can strive to use our smartphones more deliberately, even to enhance meaningfulness in some situations. I mean, sometimes, of course, it, it, the right thing to do is just put your phone on do not disturb and leave it in your bag. But my main goal of the book is not to get people to throw their smartphones away, but my hope is that the book can contribute in some way to a more thoughtful integration of smartphones into our lives. Yeah. Thank so that's, you. that's yes. sort of setting out the, setting the stage a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, you did a tremendous job. Thank you. Um, can you just, uh, I think at, at the start of this, um, and it's where you started, can you talk a little bit more about what distraction is? You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the missing out part. Um, yeah. What, what is distraction and how does that pop up? Well, uh, maybe it's helpful to think about it this way that, uh, often when we are multitasking with our smartphones in one of these in-person situations, like at dinner with family and friends or at a concert or in a college classroom, uh, we think that we're actually doing two things at the same time, but actually what we're doing <laughs> I can is already see this is switching. going. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So we think we're doing two things at the same time, but actually we're switching back and forth between two activities, you know, texting with a friend on the one hand and on the other hand, following a conversation at dinner. And sometimes these two different tasks are somewhat complementary, and sometimes they're very uncomplimentary. And what's interesting about it is that, and before I forget, I'm going to mention some uh, philosophers uh, right now who I uh, owe a debt to in this area, which is uh, uh, the philosopher Diane Michelfelder, Robert Rosenberger, and the sociologist Jane Vincent, who some of the things I'm going to talk about touch on some of their work. Here's what's interesting about this multitasking, which is actually task switching, is that when you are texting with a friend on your smartphone, there's a perceptual structure that goes along with that. And that perceptual structure involves, you know, in the simplest way, the content that your friend is texting is in the foreground. And in the background are your, you know, environmental conditions. I mean, if you're, if you're at a lecture and you're texting with a friend, uh, in the foreground is the friend and 
what you and the friend are talking about in the background uh, is, you know, whispers behind you, the lecturer talking, uh, the heads moving in front of you of people sitting in front of you. That stuff's all in the background. And in the foreground is your texting and the friend that you're texting with. Now, that kind of perceptual structure often goes unnoticed. Uh, we don't realize that we're actually shifting back and forth between two very different perceptual structures. Um, and what's even worse is that we text so often in so many different situations that we rehearse that perceptual structure that's particular to the phone so many times of the day in so many different places that it's very ingrained. Um, it's difficult to control. It's kind of sticky. And so switching back between these two perceptual structures where the, where the phone structure is so ingrained, we don't notice we're doing this. And what often happens is that we, we lose time. We don't do it as quickly as we think we do it. So sometimes you notice if you're around somebody who's using their smartphone, sometimes you'll notice that they lose a couple of seconds or they don't. Sometimes they're gone for a little bit longer than they thought they were. And uh, so this is the explanation for that. So the point is, the big point is about this uh, perceptual structure business and the stickiness of it is that this task switching that we're doing in these situations is slower than we think it is. It drags because of these ingrained perceptual structures. And so that creates the conditions for distraction because if you're somewhere like a lecture or a dinner or a concert and there's something in person that you are trying to pay attention to, when you start task switching, uh, you're dealing with these alternate inverted, in some cases, perceptual structures. And uh, it's just uh, quite difficult to keep both things going at the same time. Uh, and sometimes, I mean, we'll talk about later that Sometimes even just the fact of checking out sometimes to check into your smartphone destroys a kind of evolving, developing experience of the main situation. Um, but so um, that's, that's sort of the way that I set up thinking about distraction with a smartphone is that there's this moving back and forth, and that just necessarily results in um, a kind of distraction. Let me just make sure I'm on the uh, right track. I, I think uh, I understand what you're talking about. Um, so distraction, one way to define it would be uh, unnoticed temporal or unnoticed time loss or temporal loss because of perceptual structure switching. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting to think about is that it's sort of the way that you define distraction the way that you define what's problematic about certain kinds of distraction depends upon what you're distracted from. Different, different kinds of uh, situations require different kinds of engagement and meaningful activities require a dedicated, close kind of engagement. Uh, and so being pulled away on your phone, even just for a short time, can have a devastating effect on keeping up with the a meaningful activity that you're engaged with. Uh, you know, and I think uh, boredom comes up in, you know, 
as I'm looking through here. And one of the things that's really interesting is uh, we use boredom equivocally. There's boredom uh, because something is just not interesting, right? So if there's a conversation happening at the table and it is uh, a story you've heard before, <laughs> um, yeah, the, you know, and the person's not a good storyteller and it's a long story and it is not an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, that's just boring. But there's also the feeling. Uh, it's a similar feeling, and I think it does a similar thing in our brains, uh, which is why we sometimes call it boredom. But when something is hard, when something mm -hmm. takes a lot of attention, right? So mm -hmm. some things cannot be explained in 30 seconds. Some things take 20 minutes, yeah. and you won't understand it unless you pay attention the whole 20 minutes, the whole 60 minutes. And that feeling, that kind of like itching in your brain where like that's hard work in the same way that it'd be, it'd be hard work to listen to someone talk about like, I don't know, their great aunt's garden that didn't win any prizes or anything. You know, it's like, like I don't, you, you look at that and you're like, I'm not losing anything. But then you look at, it's a similar sensation and we're working similar muscles, I, I think, uh, if that's a, uh, am I am I tracking with you there? It's like, is there something to that, like kind of like the way that different activities get folded in, and we lose uh, meaningful ones and meaningless ones, if that makes sense? Right. Well, what's particularly tricky about meaningful activities is that they require a kind of dedicated, continuous engagement. Yeah in order to unlock what's interesting and valuable about them. Uh, so it's sometimes the case, for example, that a meaningful activity will have various different kinds of valuable elements. And some of those elements will be easy to detect. And some of them will be elements that only emerge through the relations of other elements. Um, here's an example um, of something like this. In stand-up comedy, there's a phenomenon or a sort of a technique or sort of a feature of stand-up comedy uh, called callbacks, where, um, you know, a, a comic in an early part of their set will say something funny or tell a joke or tell a funny story. And then later on, it could be 20 minutes later, they say something different that's funny or tell a different joke and it resonates with that earlier joke in a way that constitutes what they call a callback. And so that's a relational property of the stand-up comedy. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying that stand-up comedy is a, can be a potentially meaningful activity. And I could say some things about, you know, what kind of stand-up comedy is high quality enough to really fit into that category. But the point is that um, these are pretty subtle features, something like a callback um, that only becomes uh, recognizable if you're paying attention to the whole set, including these subtle relations between different parts of the set. Um, so, yeah, so the, so the, you know, like what you're saying about boredom, I mean, someone could be a little bit bored by uh, 
some story in in the comedy set, you know, about halfway through. And if they check out at the wrong time, they might not hear the second joke at all and then not get the callback. Um, or they might check out immediately after they hear the second joke and then not have the time to recognize this resonance between these two different jokes. Um, so I'm interested in, in talking about meaningful activities, I'm interested in these very subtle features of meaningful activities, and some of them are relational. Um, and so, you know, that's one reason why such, such dedicated engagement is required in order to unlock the meaning in these activities. Uh, so to go back to my example, even as you say relational, I realized, um, so we're talking like, um, you know, your grandma's talking about her great aunt, and you've heard the story before. So you already know what's coming. And so on the one hand, there are features there that you're like, you're like I'm not going to get anything from this. But what you're talking about with the relational side of it is yeah. if I pull out my phone, I, there is a relational cost of my grandma. Even if the story itself is boring, the attentiveness is, uh, you know, depending on how you want to spend time with your grandma and that relationship, like that costs something, right? Uh, you are signaling to her that she's not worth your time. Um, of course, you know, some might say that maybe she should be a little bit more self-aware, but that's, that is all part of that interplay. And that, that itself is meaningful. That interplay is that, uh, is that kind of one of those more like, cause I obviously am thinking about the story, but there's that relational interplay. Is that one of those subtle things that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about a, a you know, a couple of different interesting things there. I mean, the, the, the first thing is that, you know, when you're listening to, I don't know, I, I, I also had grandparents who, who would tell the same stories, you know, repeatedly. And sometimes what's interesting about that is that they know that these stories are going to become meaningful to you at a point in your life where you have certain experiences that you haven't had yet. Mm. And so it's possible if you have really wise grandparents that you'll hear a story once and you'll be about to hear it again and it will be boring. But it's possible that you've had some experiences in the intermediate time where now there's some resonance in that story so that it could become meaningful. Um, I'm kind of fascinated with that. I mean, my, uh, so, so that's the first, the first thing. Well, if I don't, if you don't but mind, this, uh, sure. I mean, we've all, I think, experienced that with books, right? Like there's a book that we read yeah. too young, right? And then all of a sudden you read it right. the second time. You're like, oh, that was me. That wasn't the book. That was me. Sorry. I just like, yeah, I yeah, think we all right, understand exactly. that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other point that you're making is about interaction between people and the interesting way that smartphones signal socially disengagement. You know, when you reach for your phone, that signals to the people around you that you're disengaging. And that sometimes implies a lack of interest or some other kinds of negative uh, attitudes. And that can... But even forget that, even just the disengagement, even though it's clear that when someone, especially when you think about these perceptual structures that I was talking about, when you 
start looking at your phone, take your phone out and start texting, you, you disappear from this in-person in context. And the person sitting across from you recognizes that. And so it has a negative effect on the conversation and your relationship. I mean, one of the things that I talk about near the end of the book is also that in order to shape our self-identities, we do things in the world and we do things in social contexts. And we need social context in order to take these actions that help us to shape our self-identities. You know, for example, uh, if someone is working to shape the self-identity of a drummer, that person needs to be engaging with other musicians, uh, needs to be listened to by audience members, Uh, When that person talks about rhythms during their day with someone, they need to be heard. There are all sorts of actions that someone takes. You know, someone's not a drummer just by deciding I'm a drummer. They have to do a lot of things in order to shape that identity. And and so the, the big point is about what you're saying for me is that we need functioning social environments in order to shape our self identities. And here I'm drawing from philosophers like uh, Martin Heidegger and Hubert Dreyfus and William Blattner um, about this idea of, you know, I'm also drawing broadly on the existential tradition of creating yourself, um, that that happens through what you do. And so, I mean, wow. I mean, you, it becomes so important that you have that social interaction when you're trying to do that identity work um, that, when someone checks out for a few minutes and that signals to to the person that they're sitting across from, I'm not listening to you anymore. And I kind of maybe don't care so much about what you're saying that can have a pretty devastating effect. I mean, I'll give you an example of something uh, that I witnessed that really got me thinking about this is that um, I was in a teaching a class for philosophy majors, kind of a small class, um, you know, kind of an upper level undergraduate class. And one really thoughtful philosophy major started making a a really complex point, you know, raised her hand, started making a really complex point and started to really uh, walk through this observation and this uh, claim about a text that we were reading. And when she was about 30 seconds into making this really complex point, the person, the student sitting right next to her took out his phone and started doing something that looked like maybe scrolling social media. And so I, I had a whole sequence of thoughts, you know, flash in front of my mind. And then in subsequent weeks, repeatedly flash, flash through my mind. My first thought was, you know, oh, I'm not doing my job uh, well as a professor in sort of setting this learning environment so that, uh, you know, I need to come up with some some technology restrictions or something in my class so this doesn't happen because this is bad for student learning, all that. That was my first thought. My second thought was something like, uh, you know, the student who took out his phone was being impolite and that's too bad. Um, and then my, my, you know, third thought, which took, frankly, months, <laughs> was that uh, um, this person who was trying to 
developed this complex point was doing what Heidegger calls um, taking a stand on her being. She was trying to give some shape to her self-identity. She was developing the intellectual dimension of her self-identity, and she needs this social environment in order to do that. And when someone in that social environment, or it's, you know, different for different, this is complicated because it depends on how many people do you need to do that work? How sensitive are you to people not paying attention to you? It's complicated. And I go through this in the book, but, um, but that person sitting next to her, she noticed the person sitting next to her taking out his phone and that sort of undermined the social environment where she was trying to create an aspect of her self-identity. So I really worry about, uh, I worry about the integrity of the social fabric where meaningful activities are happening. And through those meaningful activities, people are creating their self-identities. And that's a, a bunch of stuff that's happening that we don't really think about. Um, Actually, you know, I remember um, I didn't, I wish I had uh, seen this before I wrote the book, but I didn't. But Jack White, who's the, you know, the White Stripes, Jack Familiar, White. Familiar, yes. Yeah. Um, he, there was an interview he did where he talked about his problems with audiences using smartphones. And he was, uh, he's one of these uh, musicians who has the audiences put their phones in a, Ziploc that locks and they can't access it till they leave the venue, all that kind of stuff. He's pretty serious about it. But he had a really interesting way of talking about this, which um, is similar. He said that he doesn't like to write a set list in advance. He likes to interact with the audience in a way that helps him to determine which song should come next. You know, he shapes his set based on the way audiences react to the music he's playing. And, you know, I assume what the energy is like in the room and all that kind of stuff. And his claim is that he needs that dedicated engagement from the audience. My words, you know, not his, but he needs that kind of dedicated engagement in order to create his show the way he wants it to go. Um, so that's a, another interesting example of the kind of social, fa the importance of the social fabric of engagement in not only constituting a meaningful activity, but also in creating the space where individuals can shape their, their self-identities. I love that you used Jack White as an example. I don't think I saw that particular interview, but I've heard him talk about this kind of stuff before. And what's really interesting, even as you talk about self-identity, is when he talks about that, like, um, I don't remember the exact word you used, like that dedicated attention that for him, he normally talks about it in, as struggle or he uses like metaphors for conflict, that he is fighting himself and fighting the music, which is very much, <laughs> especially That's as you, you listen to his music. It's very much uh, um, the work of his self-identity, right? Like that's like a part of, that's the way he conceives of it. Um, but, it, and for him and for like, as you were talking through all of this, uh, feedback is very important, right? It's, it's that yeah, there's proper right. yeah. feedback. Uh, and the reason, and 
I think sometimes uh, because of the way our culture functions, we struggle with this. Uh, a lot of my own philosophical work, <laughs> work like classwork. I mean, um, but the uh, I did a lot of reading in Gadamer and Ricoeur, and they and Gadamer was taking from uh, Jean Baptiste Vico, and I, I returned to this over and over again. Especially I homeschool my kids, so uh, it keeps me honest. But uh, Vico's critique of Descartes, one of the first critiques of like Cartesian philosophy, was this doesn't work with kids, right? And <laughs> this idea of like pulling things apart, it's like you have to, you have to teach them and you have to give them cues. And this, uh, th this idea of like, oh, we need social people like, well, I don't need other people to form my own self identity. And it's like, well, you may not now, you know, one, I disagree with you, but you might argue that you might not need it now, but you most certainly need it when you're a kid and everyone is a kid at some point. And so like, without a doubt, like it, it, it is not um, whether someone would want to argue with you about, you know, oh, you know what? She just needs to like express herself, whether that, that guy's paying attention or not. Right. Like if everyone took out a smartphone, she could still express herself. It's like if you do that to a kid, like without that, the self-identity work that they, you know, when you get to be an adult, there's a level of maturity where you can handle improper feedback. Mm -hmm. Kids don't have that. Right. Like, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I'm just saying it's like kind of the, uh, I think your argument holds even in that situation in the, in the classroom. Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, as like, kind of like a, if anyone were to contest it, it's like, it becomes very clear. And the pedagogical studies are very clear that like, we have to have that proper feedback at a young age. And I mean, this is <laughs> to my shame, but I think a lot of parents, um, in recent times have experienced this. Um, I have had my kid come up and move the phone as I am looking at it to get me to talk mm -hmm. to them, right? Yeah, and I, this is interesting, a, yeah. a common thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because they're like, I'm not getting what I need. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, that's my bad as a parent, right? Well, most mm -hmm. of the time. Sometimes I'm like, uh, you have enough. But, <laughs> 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 but most of the time they're right. Um, so I don't know if that's, uh, that just felt like a little yeah. addendum on there that I think is uh, useful to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, it's fa fascinating what you say that children are likely even more sensitive to the need for this kind of recognition and social interaction for understanding themselves. I mean, the way that, um, that Hubert Dreyfus talks about this is this creating your self-identity is a kind of self-interpretation, like trying to understand what you're doing. I was thinking about the, the way that, uh, in particular, um, another philosopher who's really good on this is uh, William Blattner in his um, guidebook. I don't know if it's called guidebook, but it's a, it's a, a book about reading being in time. And Heidegger's being in time. And I knew Blattner, I had seen that name. I have it on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Book. Go ahead. And Blattner makes very clear something that Heidegger talks about in terms of being with, which is that in being in time, Blattner says that our, now I'm going to, I'm going to adjust some words to suit my purposes here, but our self identity. Our self-identities are interconnected. And so he gives these nice examples that, that my identity as a father depends on my children. My 
my identity as a professor depends on not just the identity of my students, but the work they do to create their identities is necessarily entangled with the work I do to create my identity. I mean, if a teacher ever tries to teach a class by just focusing on the chalkboard or whiteboard and ignoring their students, you find that it doesn't work. I mean, there needs to be a kind of interaction in the room. And the interaction in the room has to be an interaction where students are doing their identity work. You know, one student might be a budding philosopher. Another student might be a strategic learner. Another student might be a class clown. You know, whatever the variety of self-identities they're creating. I'm glad you a, mentioned me. And, Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there's a necessary, necessary kind of intermingling that's really fascinating. Mm. And same thing in the music case. I mean, uh, and we were talking about, you know, these Jack White examples. Um, one of the things that a good uh, drummer does in a live performance is, first of all, set tempos and grooves for the band, but also tap into the energy of the audience in order to figure out what tempo is appropriate at this time in this venue on this night. And then also to sometimes push the audience a little bit. So in order for the subtle work that a drummer does in set, setting tempos and grooves, they have to be completely in tune and in sync with what the audience is giving them. And I think this is kind of related to some of these things that Jack White um, says, which are so fascinating, which I would have, I write a lot about um, musical performance in the book. I take musical performance as an example of what Albert Borgman calls a focal practice, which is a meaningful activity, according to me. And, uh, and I set the project for myself of trying to make the case that musical performance is a, a focal practice and a meaningful activity. But I wish I would have had that Jack White interview before I wrote the book. Um. So when your book sells out and the second printing comes out, um, you could add, add yeah. <laughs> you could add mm -hmm. the other thing, uh, what you just described is um, talked about almost exactly like that in uh, Gadamer's Relevance of the Beautiful. He talks about rhythm and the way that the difference between rhythm and timing is the interplay between the musician and the audience. So oh, that's anyways, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was yeah. um, the... Uh, yeah, even as you were talking there, um, and we're talking about the professor who does not engage with the students, right? Who just stands up yeah. there and lectures. Um, that is still, uh, it's a different set of demands, but it's still a demand on the students. And it seems like there is like, uh, almost like a, a continuum or spectrum of, uh, of a more authoritative stance and a more dialogic stance, if that makes sense. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, Absolutely. And that's like, I mean, even uh, to use um, Jack White, I, I know he's also famous for uh, he left in the middle of a set because the audience wasn't giving him what he wanted. And that would definitely be a more <laughs> authoritative stance, right? Yeah, like you're great. like, you yeah. are not following me and that does not count. <laughs> yeah, It's like, you that's can't funny. do that. But then we see this like with teaching styles, like that's a, again, a question of the power dynamic and the, the self-identity work what does it mean to be a professor when the professor is more authoritative and it's just like, 
no, we'll take questions at the end or I, I will call on you instead of like um, something where it's more like uh, the Socratic method, for instance, which is very like, um, but in both cases, there is self-identity work. You know, um, I remember I had uh, yeah. Dr. Lewis mm-hmm. Gordon on and he talked about, he, he starts off his classes as saying, I am not a teacher. I am just a more advanced student. And that's a very different stance from yeah, like, like yeah. hey, I am Dr. So-and-so. This is my mm-hmm. class. 50% of you are going to fail. You know, like that's. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I really love that. Uh, that approach that you say about I'm a, a student too. I mean, I really, when I teach, my favorite thing to do when I teach is to start all over again with the texts that we're working on and to really think about them freshly with the students. And sometimes I discover by doing that, that I learn new things that I didn't know before, just by going through this all over again with this group of people. Um, So I really love this uh, discussion-based interaction approach to teaching. Um, But, okay, but even for the kind of a teacher who is a lecturer and, uh, and you know, somewhat authoritarian, Um, that person still needs the students to pay attention, to write papers, to come to office hours. Right. You know, they still need the students to do the identity work that they're doing to be students in order for the teacher to do the identity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, It's just different. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, and that's, uh, and these are all, uh, intersubjective, like these social uh, context, uh, exactly what you're talking about. Um, and I think this is a great point, like I, uh, to transition because I, you know, I, I got really excited about what you're talking about and obviously I I've done some similar work so I can talk about this all day, but I don't want to miss talking about the interplay between focal things and focal practices yeah. and identity yeah. work, because that's obviously yeah. a major chunk of this, of, of your work right. here. I was just thinking the same thing. Um, Okay, let me set the stage. What we need to know is what makes something meaningful? What makes an activity meaningful? Because, you know, as I said, the, the main claim that I'm trying to explore is the idea that smartphones can interfere with the engagement in meaningful activities and so result in less meaning in your life if you're not careful with the kind of smartphone work you do in uh, you know, in-person activities that are potentially meaningful. So the question is, what makes something meaningful? And the simplest way to talk about it is through the work of Susan Wolf, um, who has this view of meaning, meaning in life. And what Susan Wolf says is that an activity is meaningful if, and here are two necessary conditions, the subject is fulfilled by it, so in other words, if you're passionate about something, that's satisfying one necessary condition for something to be meaningful. If you're passionate about it, you're gripped by it. That's what she calls the subjective condition. And then the other one is that in order for an activity to be meaningful, it must be what she says at first is objectively valuable. But, so those are the two necessary conditions, subjective fulfillment and objective value. But she says about this second condition, objective value, she doesn't. She acknowledges that she doesn't have a uh, an account of objective value, and no one should expect her to because it's a 
difficult thing to do. <laughs> but then she, but then she realizes that I think she realizes this is my interpretation that really a very strict account of objective value would really miss the mark of the kind of uh, category that we're talking about. And so what she ends up saying is that that really what she's looking for is a way of determining whether an activity is valuable independent of the subject's attitudes. So what she's saying is, in order for an activity to be meaningful, it must be valuable in some way in addition to your passion for it. And so she's looking for some notion of value in addition to a person's passion. And if you have those two things, if you have, if you're passionate about an activity and if uh, that activity is valuable in some way independent of your passion, then that's a, a potentially meaningful, well, that is a meaningful activity. And uh, now what I, I bring in Albert Borgman's uh, discussion of focal things and practices as a way of trying to say more about that objective condition, which after she sort of lightens it, as I just described, she just refers to it as, is this activity worthwhile? So that's what we're trying to figure out. In addition to, are you passionate about it? Is it worthwhile? And I bring in this uh, notion of focal things and practices in order to try to say something about what it would mean for an activity to be worthwhile. And so I'll say, should I say a little bit about that, about how that might work? Okay. So Albert Borgman has this idea that there are certain kinds of practices that are focal practices. And he, here are some examples, a really wide range of things that are fascinating. Running, hiking, these are all focal practices. Playing music, uh, a dinner with family and friends, which he calls the culture of the table, carpentry, gardening, whole wide range of things that he thinks are focal practices. And he doesn't use the word meaning, but he uses a lot of terms that are, I claim, close enough to being synonymous so that we can say that focal practices are meaningful. Now, what, remember, what we're trying to do is figure out how can we say, how can we establish that these focal practices are worthwhile in the sense that satisfies Susan Wolf's condition? And Borgman says that focal practices preserve or safeguard focal things. And so he pairs up this interesting set of practices and things. So he says, for example, uh, that a dinner with the family or friends, which he calls the culture of the table, that's a focal practice, safeguards the meal. The meal is the focal thing. Um, musical performance, a focal practice, according to me, not Borgman, Musical performance, a focal practice, safeguards musical instruments, a focal thing. Borgman does say that musical instruments are focal things. So when we take these together, why, what is a focal thing and what is a focal practice? Here's a quick point that I can make in order to say why this discussion of focal practices and focal things helps us to understand why an activity can be meaningful. A focal thing, like a musical instrument, connects a context and it anchors the focal practice of musical performance. 
And so, I mean, what would that look like? It's like a guitar connects a guitarist to music. The guitar connects the guitarist to other musicians. The guitar connects the guitarist to audience members. The guitar even connects the guitarist to guitarists who were alive 50 years ago through certain styles of playing. So my, one of my points is that this connecting work, it's almost like these focal things, like a guitar, or also like, um, well, I'll just leave the guitar to keep it straightforward. It's almost like they have tentacles that reach out and connect the context, or in Borgman's terms, which are very Heideggerian, gather a world, that these focal things gather a world. It's almost like they have tentacles that reach out to connect up that context. And I think that my, my point here is that that connecting of a context establishes that that focal practice is worthwhile. It, it establishes these connections that make it worthwhile, that make it valuable, in addition to merely being something that you're passionate about. And that that's enough for us to say that a focal practice like musical performance or a focal practice like a dinner with friends or a focal practice like a certain kind of stand-up comedy is worthwhile. It's meaningful in addition to just one's passion for it. And that's enough to fill out, I think, um, Susan Wolf's theory of meaning in life. And then the big uh, you know, point about smartphones here is that being engaged in a focal practice and focal thing has very high demands of attention, dedicated experiences that develop and evolve. This is where I bring in John Dewey in the book. And smartphone distraction is no longer a mere distraction from some end or task, but now it's distraction from engagement with all of those things that are involved in that focal practice. And once you get distracted from, like I was talking about the callback, once you get in stand-up comedy, once you get distracted from these subtle features, then you're much less likely to be passionate about an activity because you're not engaged. You're not unlocking all of the potentially meaningful, valuable things of a focal practice. Is it okay if I put it, for me, I'm... And I, I hope it's not too grand of an approach, but to put it in almost Heideggerian terms, you know, you're embedding these things in the, the focal thing is embedding the focal practice in context. Uh, in this case, in, in history, in, it, and this is where, you know, so a lot of Heidegger's work on art and like the temple uh, reveals the world. Basically, that you are embedding being in time and thereby giving it meaning. And so when you shorten the focal practice, when you shorten the focal time, it's not just that you are losing this meaningful activity, it's that you are shrinking your world. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And yeah, this idea of a focal practice Think about an example like a Thanksgiving dinner and all of the traditions and all of the activities that go along with a Thanksgiving dinner. That's a focal practice. You know, people bring 
mashed potatoes, somebody else brings wine, you help cook, you sit down at the table, maybe people say some things about what they're thankful for. There's conversation and dinner. After dinner, maybe people play football, maybe they watch football, maybe they don't have anything to do with football at all, but there's <laughs> more conversation after dinner. And those are all traditions and uh, activities that preserve a certain kind of contextual meaning. And yeah, that, those are the kind of concrete details I like to think about yes. when trying to understand what is it that makes that focal practice worthwhile in addition to just being passionate about it. I mean, some people love right. Thanksgiving dinner for, for all this stuff, and that's not enough to make it meaningful. But if it's worthwhile because it draws in all of these traditions and all of these uh, recurring activities that add value to it, it's just like the music case. Um, you know, and you think about something like stand-up comedy, where if the stand-up comedy is really good, it results in you and your friends not just sharing laughter, but also talking about later the things that the comedian made you think about, about society or about your own place in the world. Um, and so, yeah, similarly, yeah, I'm interested in practices and connections. Um, and this, this, what you said about gathering the world and, uh, you know, the thing that Albert Borgman is worried about is that one by one, we replace focal practices with technological devices. And, you know, so for example, Borgman says he's worried that we replace a family dinner or a dinner with friends with what he calls technological food, which is like microwavable food. Or he's worried that we replace learning how to play musical instruments with Spotify. And so our cultures, one reason why this is interesting to me is that our culture has this tendency toward convenience and efficiency, which tends to bring about the breakdown of focal practices. And so it's interesting to think about focal practices as something meaningful to preserve. And then my worry is that the serial task switching involved in using a smartphone in these contexts has such a negative effect on a person's engagement in the context that you don't tap into or unlock all of these valuable elements of the context. And so then it can't become meaningful for you. Uh, kind of, a, I, I think it's tied and that's obviously why I'm going to ask it. Do you think the length of the narratives we engage in is part of this question? You know, even as you talk about Thanksgiving to Thanksgiving to Thanksgiving, and then you talk about listening for long, you know, obviously that's what I try to do here, like listening to like this idea that um, a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, I, I spent some time on TikTok and I was stunned by how much it changed my brain. Like I literally, I can't even, it, it was so, I, I felt more distracted. Um, I got earworms for music, but because of the way that TikTok works, I don't know how familiar you are with it. Um, 
Yeah, they, I mean, I'm yeah, I'm very familiar with smartphones, but I've sort of steered clear somewhat of TikTok. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but I encounter it a lot through yeah. my partner. Um, so there are, um, they play what well, they'll show different videos according to the same audio clip, right? And that's one of the ways that uh, it chains together videos. And so what happens is you listen to the same thirty seconds of audio over and over and over again. And what I found myself doing is instead of like hearing a song in my head, one, I heard music in my head more often and it was whatever was most popular on TikTok. And I only heard that 20 to 30 seconds of whatever that clip was. I did not hear the whole song. It was just that repeating over and over again. And uh, and it just, I, I literally could feel it shaping my brain. I don't, I, and I, you know, I don't have neurological studies for that. I'm sure that the people are working on that. But that it feels like the the length of the narrative, the and by that I mean just the beginning, the middle, and the end. Like you can have like a a conversation like that. Uh, feels like it, it's part of this discussion when you talk about engagement. Um, this maybe the structure of engagement is that the right way to think about that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is why I talk about John Dewey in the book, which is what I I bring up his concept of what he calls an experience. And I adjust it a little bit, and I and I call it a developed experience. Um, this is a way that scholars sometimes refer to this concept of an experience. But what's I mean, what you're saying, I think, is exactly right. And what I try to do with Dewey is to try to say more about what engagement in a meaningful activity really amounts to. And what Dewey says, and this is really along the lines of what you're talking about, but your your way of doing it was interesting. Um, Dewey says that there are, I mean, it's funny because Dewey is writing in the 1930s and there's a, a text where he sort of laments the degradation of experience in the hustle and bustle of our modern world. And he's writing <laughs> in the 1930s, like, wait, if he could see it now, he, would, oh, be, gosh. he yeah. would have a heart attack. But, but what's fascinating about Dewey's account of experience is that he sees the structure of experiences, just like what you said, as consisting of phases of activity and taking in and activity and taking in, he calls it doing and undergoing, but not just that, but also the relations between these phases. Think about the callback example I was talking about stand-up comedy. So we're, we not only have to be aware of our perceptual and cognitive activity, we have to be aware of what, we're undergoing as a result of the activity. And then Dewey says, we have to be aware of the relations between the doing and undergoing. And then what he says is, which is fascinating, is that long experiences have a character, a qualitative character that he calls a pervasive quality. And he thinks that it emerges slowly through this doing and undergoing. Uh, and so... I think it's even just, I mean, you can think about, this is what I'm thinking of in the back of my mind when I talk about callbacks. Another interesting example is in philosophy, the idea that you make a statement that functions as a conclusion, you make another set of statements that function as premises, and then you wonder if the conclusion follows from the premises, and that's an inference 
And that's a relational property that you only perceive if you're following this experience of exploring these statements and their relations. And so just long story short, the fascinating thing, once you realize that in order to unlock a meaningful experience, you need this extended engagement, then it becomes really alarming that what happens when you switch your perceptual structure into your phone is that you abort this developing experience and its evolving perceptual quality. You just cut it off. And you can't, it's not like you're, you know, a nurse who is sorting pills into little white cups where if you realize you're distracted, you can make a correction and fix the cups. This is a case where there's an evolving, developing experience. And if you get distracted from it, you abort it. You can't go back. You have to start over again. And the problem with in-person events is you can't start them and stop them according to your own smartphone work. Uh, they're just happening. Um, so yeah, I think, I think what you're saying is really crucial that engagement has a structure, it's developing, and there's a high cost to pay for checking out. I think a clear example of what you're talking about, the uh, having to go back, we've all been distracted while reading. And our, our, we go over the words and then the only, I mean, that's a great example of a pervasive experience. Your yeah. only solution is to go back, right? You can't just like, I mean, you can't, depending on if the book is really bad, maybe you just skip ahead. But, um, <laughs> but you, would, you would lose something fundamental about the book. Um, I, I will say, that's and I'm curious, uh, there's a lot of vocabulary floating around. And I love the way that you use different philosophers. Um, you know, Dewey and Heidegger together is, uh, you know, you have those two different traditions. Uh, but when you said developed experience, um, when I saw that chapter title, my first thought was wisdom. Like that's a way of thinking about what wisdom is. Do you think that in some ways, like this idea of this attentive structure, right? Because wisdom isn't just experience, right? It's not just like if you're like, we, we, you know, if you're older, you're wiser. Like it's about developed experience. Do you, th do you see this when you talk about maybe as a way to help people understand the implications that the switching of perceptual structures is uh, like causing a loss of wisdom? You know, I don't know what to say about wisdom, uh, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, but you're definitely right that, you know, when we think of examples like, like reading a book or like trying to follow an argument, Think of what it's like in a, in a class, a philosophy class, where someone's making a claim, someone's exploring the premises to support the claim, someone then considers an objection, then there's a rejoinder to the objection from the perspective of the person who made the original claim, then the original claim is adjusted to, you know, so in order to even just follow the unfolding of philosophical argument, uh, you have to be attentive continuously and you can't just check in and out and you have to, you know, what I like about these relational examples like inference and callbacks or grooves in music is that, is that they're, they're qualities that emerge only 
when you're attentive to the relations. And so you definitely need this continuous um, perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. What I love about the classroom example used is that doesn't have to be smartphones. I think everyone's experienced someone coming in in the middle of a really good discussion or argument that's been going on for a while in the classroom. They come in and they make a point that they think is really good. And everyone turns and looks at them and says, no, we said, we talked about that 20 minutes ago, right? Like yeah. <laughs> you had to be yeah. here. Um, yeah. I, Dr. Ahol, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, for our audience, if you could give one takeaway, what would it be? Okay. Um, I do end the book with some thoughts about some positive thoughts yeah. uh, that emerge from all of this sort of concern. And one thing I say is that my, my first hope is that uh, just making people aware of the difficulties of distraction, um, you know, the perceptual structures, um, you know, what it is for something to be meaningful, that even that making people aware of that might help to just clarify what's happening enough to encourage people to make some changes. Here are some simple changes. It's, I think, important to become conscious of the distinction between on-task smartphone use and off-task smartphone use. Something that's relevant to an in-person situation is on-task. Something that's irrelevant is off-task. Avoid the off-task use in any situation that's potentially meaningful. And, you know, can we do, can we use our smartphones to do one thing at a time? That's sort of something we have to try to learn how to do, I think. And one way to do that is to really use a do not disturb feature a lot. Um, that sort of the, one of the points I make toward the end then also is that maybe it's possible for us to get some sort of control over our perceptual structures and our reflexes to, you know, go back and forth in our multitasking. And if we can get a little bit of control, maybe there is a way to use our smartphones even to enhance some in-person meaningful activities. And I explore this in the, at the end of the book in conjunction with this concept that Albert Borgman has. He calls it technological instruments. I call it technological paraphernalia. And he has these examples of something like running shoes being a technological item that supports the focal practice of running. And something like a dishwasher supports the focal practice of a family dinner. Can we figure out how to use phones as technological paraphernalia to support and foster engagement in in-person meaningful activities. And I think it is possible. And I give some examples of how we might learn to do that. Um, so yeah, my, my, you know, I am someone who is quite, quite positive about my phone. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure out how best to integrate it into my life, uh, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think it's definitely an open question. Um, uh, it makes, I, I have to say, thank you. Uh, it makes me feel a lot better to hear you say that. And you wrote a, you know, this book on it. <laughs> Cause that's I, part of why I wrote the uh, book. <laughs> constantly try to figure that out. Um, 
again, Dr. Ohol, thank you. And uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thanks, PJ. I really appreciate it.